Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the 13th chapter of uh, Hebrews. I have some good news this morning. I don't have 29 points, uh, so you can take a deep breath and relax a little bit. I had several people told me after last Sunday that they had hand cramps, they were uh, tired, they went home, took a nap, uh, and still didn't get all 29 of them. So we'll publish those at some point soon so you can, can have those because a lot of people have been asking for them. Um, if you were not here last week, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but we looked at one verse, and that was the good news. The bad news was 29 points. The one verse was, uh, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then I went back through the entirety of the book of Hebrews and showed what that referred to. 29 statements about Jesus throughout this book that give us a clear understanding of, of what he's talking about when he says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not going to repeat all those this morning, but suffice it to say that the book is filled with a richness of, of showing us Jesus Christ in a multifaceted, glorious way, and he wants us as we come to the end of this book to see that really it's all about Christ. It's not about this group of Jewish believers who are off uh, somewhere in sort of exile, who are struggling to keep the faith, who are wondering if they ought to turn back to Judaism and go back to the sacrificial system or not. It's not about them when it comes right down to it. But it's about Christ. It's about Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. It's about Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. It's about Jesus Christ, who shed his blood that we might live. He died that we might live. I mean, I mean, the, the entirety of this book is Christ above all. And that's above everything. When he comes to this last chapter, he gets very practical. And so he talked about us, us remembering those who led us. And he talked about us not being carried away in verse 9 by varied and strange teachings or doctrines. And not to be caught up by foods, but to recognize that we, there, there's nothing in those, but, but rather grace is what is to strengthen us, not, not mere food. But many have been occupied by that and they were not benefited. Now, that may seem like a strange statement when you first listen to it. What, what is, how do, why does he contrast grace and food? But if you think about the New Testament, there, there's a lot of teaching, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings, where Paul talks about, you know, food. Where he says, don't get caught up about foods. Don't get caught up about dietary restrictions. Those were under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, there's a freedom. And, and you find people in, in Paul's day, and, and even the, in this writer's day, uh, saying, you know, well, you can't eat that because it was forbidden under the law. And the writer's saying, listen, it's not the food that strengthens you. It's not the food that makes you right with God. It's not obedience to a law that makes you right with God, but it's grace. And you need to learn that. You need to remember that. You're to be strengthened by grace. And it was true for those believers reading this letter for the first time. And it's true for you and me. We come to faith by grace. It is God's grace that brings us to faith in Christ. Paul says that, that even the faith is not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God. It's God's grace that brings us to Christ. And it's God's grace that sustains us in Christ. It's God's grace that will get us to the end. And what this writer is concerned about above everything else is getting to the end. 
running the race good, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, not stumbling, not falling, but, but coming to a perfection of our faith, a perfection of the Christian life when we stand before him in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, in all of his perfection. So, when you read this book, and, and especially this 13th chapter, you see him concerned about little things, about morality and marriage, ethics and marriage. You, you see him concerned about, uh, about our character, being free from the love of money, but being content. But most of all, his concern is that we exalt and, and glorify and focus on Jesus Christ. And the four verses we're going to look at today, or maybe the five verses we're going to look at today, verses 10 through 14, he, he brings that down in a very theological and practical way that these people fully understood and that you and I need to fully understand. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, those bodies, those animals are burned outside the camp. The priest did not eat of the, of the, of the sacrifice that was made for sin. It, it was, after it was sacrificed, it was taken out of the city, out of the tabernacle, out of the temple, and it was burned outside the camp. And, 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 and that's important to realize. Therefore, verse 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, outside the city. The place where the sin offering was taken and burned, he was outside, he was not in the temple, he was not in the tabernacle, he was not in the holy place as a sacrifice in the Jewish legal system, but he was outside, he was on Calvary. And that's significant, and the writer wants us to see that. So that the people through his blood could be sanctified, he suffered outside the gate. Listen verse 13. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This is the word of God. The writer here says, hear carefully the significance of the death of Christ. Hear carefully the significance of Calvary. Hear carefully where our altar is located. It's not located in a tabernacle or a temple. It's not located in a church. You know, in years gone by, thank God we've done away with some of the terminology that we used to use. but We used to talk about uh, this being an altar here. You know, come to the altar and pray. Come forward to the altar to receive Christ. And, and we sort of may talk like the front of the church here where the Lord's Supper table is, is an altar. This is not an altar. We have an altar. We have an altar, but he says it's an altar which those who serve in the tabernacle cannot eat. They have no right to eat. They are not, they're not allowed to eat from it. If they're offering on an altar that is a physical altar inside a building, then they have no right to eat of the altar with which we come to. Because we come to the altar of the cross. We come to the altar at Calvary. 
The, the altar for Christians happened 2,000 years ago and never happens again. There's never another altar. We, we don't come to a place for an altar. We come to a person for an altar. That's why the church can't save you. That, that's why you can't be saved just because you get your name on the roll of Grace Baptist Church or any other church across this land. You can only be saved if you come to the altar of the Scripture, the altar of the New Testament, the altar of the church, and it's not in a church building, but it's at the very foundation of the church. It's at Calvary. It's on Golgotha. It's where Christ died. It's where the only lamb that, that suffices for the forgiveness of sin and the sanctification of his people is. It's not here. Oh, we have a symbol of it right here on the wall. We, we have a symbol that, that symbolizes and reminds us of where our altar is. But this is not an altar. It's merely a picture. It's merely a reminder that we are to draw near to the cross of Christ. We are to draw near to Christ in his death and in his sacrifice that was on the cross. We have an altar, the writer says in verse 10, but it's not in the tabernacle. It's not inside the city. It's not one that's decorated and beautiful and, and clean and, and nice and, and sanitized. We have an altar, but it's not like that. So for even those who came to the tabernacle altar, which was an altar, sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle in the temple, they, they offered lambs, and they offered bulls, and they offered goats, and they offered pigeons, and they offered doves, and they offered all sorts of offerings there, all sorts of sacrifices there. And on the Day of Atonement, the big sacrificial lamb was offered, offered in the Holy of Holies to, to appease and, 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 and seek forgiveness of the sins of the people. But all of those were offered physically in a place, and all of those were temporal in their accomplishment. We have an altar. We have an altar that's greater than that altar. We have, an, we have an altar that is not temporary and not having to be repeated and not having to be done over and over again. We have an altar that is permanent. We have an altar that is eternal. We, ha we have an altar that does not require repeating because it accomplished what it accomplished once and for all time. It, it accomplished it in perfection. And so all of those lambs that were offered as, as sin offerings, they were picked up after they were offered, and they were carried outside the camp and burned, signifying that the sin was, was appeased on that moment, and it was carried out, the sin upon that offering, upon that lamb, was carried out and burned and destroyed, not eaten because it was carrying sin, symbolically. And Jesus... Verse 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people, his people, those who have come to him through, by grace through faith, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered also outside the gate, outside the temple, outside the city. Symbolic of the fact that religion does not save. Symbolic of the fact that a place that can be replicated, like a church, does not save. Only outside the gate, on Golgotha, on Calvary, 
could salvation be accomplished by the very death, by the very shedding of blood of Jesus Christ. It says he did that to sanctify the people. Now we've talked about that word sanctify before. What does it mean? It means to set them apart. It means to make them holy. It means to cleanse them. It means to make them right with God and put them on a path of sanctification that is growing and maturing and developing and, and, and there's, a, there's a progress in life because of that sanctification. But there's a lot involved in bringing about sanctification. Matter of fact, I, I, I dare say Scripture tells us that there are probably six things that are involved in sanctification. One thing that's involved is what we might call expiation. Expiation is the removal of our sin and guilt. Christ's death removes, expiates our sin and our guilt when we by faith trust in Him. The guilt of our sin is taken away from us and placed on Christ who discharged it by His death, who, who took it upon Himself and he, 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 he died in our place. He, he, he expiated our sin by taking it away from us and putting it on himself. John said in John the Baptist said in John 129, he said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah said in 53 6, he says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And Hebrews 9:26, where we looked at several months ago, said, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Expiation is the taking away, the expiating of your sin. Pulling it away, taking it away, and taking it upon himself. But not only is there the expiation of sin in this sanctification, there is also, and we've talked about this word before, one of my favorite biblical terms, only used four times, but the word propitiation, which made the top list in Blast this year from our uh, MC Blast. But propitiation, whereas expiation refers to remove our sins, propitiation refers to the removal of God's wrath. God's wrath is poured out on all sin. Scripture's clear about that. We live in a day when we don't, people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We like to talk about the love of God. God is love. God is peace. God is happiness. God just wants you to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be holy, not, not happy. Happiness is, is not the issue to be considered in that. Holiness is. So by expiation, he takes away our sin, and by propitiation, he, he deals with the wrath of God toward your sin. In other words, he, he expiates our sin from us. He propitiates God's wrath toward us and takes it away and removes it from our very presence. Dying in our place for our sins, Christ removed the wrath that you and I all justly deserve. And that's important to understand. Several passages in the scripture speak of Christ's death as propitiation. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of him who has faith 
in Jesus. Likewise, in Hebrews 2.17 that we looked at many months ago, it says, Christ made propitiation for the sins of his people. 1 John 3.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath was dealt with. So there's expiation, there's propitiation, there is reconciliation in this, in this sanctification, this sanctifying his people. There's reconciliation. The scripture indicates that we were enemies of God when we were separated from him. There was a separation. There was an alienation. There was a, there was a battle raging. There was war going on. And yet in his death and by his blood, he not only expiated and propitiated, but he reconciled us unto God. Romans 5, 10 and 11 says, For while we were, if while we were yet enemies... We are reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I mean, there's that, that beautiful picture of reconciliation. Two people at odds. When they are reconciled, e even in our world, even in our own experience, if we have a friend that we are alienated from, or a, or a family member that we are alienated from, and, and there comes a reconciliation... What do we do? We celebrate. We're, we rejoice. We're grateful. But the greatest reconciliation of all was when we who were enemies of God were reconciled to him, not by our own doing, not by our own deeds, not by our own ability, but by the shed blood of Christ. That's a part of this sanctification, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation. Fourthly, there's redemption. Redemption, our sins had put us in captivity from which we had to be delivered. The price that, that is paid to deliver someone is often called a ransom. To say that Christ's death accomplished redemption for us means that it accomplished deliverance from our captivity through the payment of that price. There are several things Scripture talks about in this idea of reconciliation and, and this idea of redemption, being released from the curse of the law, the guilt of sin, the power of sin, Christ redeemed us from all of those. Matter of fact, Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become, on the cross, a curse for us. We, we were cursed by the law. We could not obey it. We could not keep it. We could not find righteousness in it. And we were cursed by it. But in the cross, in his shed blood that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, in verse 12, he became a curse in our place. He became a curse for us. He redeemed us from the guilt of our sin. Romans 3.24 says, We are justified as a free gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Our guilt is gone. I sometimes have people say to me, well, you're just trying to make people feel guilty. And, and my answer is, I don't have to make them feel guilty. They are guilty until they come to Christ. I mean, people come and say, I just, I just want to have help. I want to get over some of these guilt feelings I have. Well, 
Friend, the only way to get over your, your guilt feelings is to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. Confession of sin and, and repentance of sin and trusting in Christ and coming to Him. And in His reconciliation, He, he, he deals with that guilt. The person in Christ is no longer guilty. They're reconciled. They're redeemed. Then Christ redeemed us from the power of sin in, in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You can't be redeemed by silver and gold. You, you can't be redeemed by stuff can only be redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And he did that. But realize we're not simply redeemed from the guilt of sin, but we are, are to be redeemed from the power of sin, and that means that our slavery to sin is broken. We are now free to live, right, or live in righteousness and live to righteousness. Our redemption from the power of sin is thus the basis of our ability to live holy lives. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies, Paul said. So, so we're to, our redemption gives us the ability, the freedom to glorify Christ and worship Him and live for His glory. To live to righteousness. Do you realize that if you're not in Christ, you can only live to unrighteousness? That's all you can do. That's all you can do. You say, well, I know people who are not in Christ who do good things. Yeah, humanly speaking, they do good things. But their whole life is to unrighteousness because they're not in Christ. Christ is the only way to righteousness. You see, that exchange took place. In expiation, he took our sins off of us and took it to the cross. But in that same thing he exchanged, he gave us, who trust him, his righteousness that we had none of. He had no sin, he took our sin. We have no righteousness, he gives us of his righteousness. There's expiation, there's propitiation, there's reconciliation, there's redemption. And then fifth, there's the defeat of the power of darkness. Christ's death was the defeat of Satan and all of Satan's power. Colossians 3.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in Him. Satan's only weapon that ultimately can hurt people is unforgiven sin. And Christ took that weapon away from Him for all who believe, defeating Him and all the powers of darkness by His death. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he has set it aside, nailing it to the cross. You know, it just it strips Satan of all his power. Because the debt that was against us, he's canceled. The debt that stood as a legal record, a legal demand against us, has been stamped, paid in full, canceled 
by his work on the cross. And Paul says there in Colossians, and I love the imagery there, it says Jesus took it and, and God took it and he, he took that certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. Those soldiers thought they were nailing Jesus to the cross, but, but it was our certificate of debt that was being nailed there to all that believe. There's expiation, there's propitiation, there's, there, there's reconciliation, there's redemption. And finally, we have to understand that all he did all this by dying as our substitute. That's the essence of sanctification, is he became our substitute. Can you get your hands on that? Can, can, you, can you wrap yourself around that? that? That's what it means when it says Christ died for us in Romans 5.8 and gave himself for us in Galatians 2.20. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, Isaiah 53.5 and 6. I mean, the, the, the idea there is that he was there in your place. He was there in my place. He was there as a substitute. We understand substitution. Not quite as significant as this one, but in sports, somebody gets tired and, and, and they just can't go anymore. The coach does what? Sends in a substitute. What does the substitute do? What does the substitute do? I hate it when I do that. What does a substitute do? Well, if he's a good substitute, he does everything that the first person could no longer do. You know, he, he, he fulfills that, which the one who tired just fell short of and could not accomplish. And the substitute comes in, and he, he carries on and does what the other one couldn't do, what the starter couldn't do. Well, that's... That analogy will break down at some point. I realize all analogies usually do. But the point is this. He did in our place what we could not do. You understand that? He did in our place what we could not do. That's the whole essence of, of him being our substitution. Substitution is the means by which we are reconciled. First uh, Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And you could go on, you could go on, and you could go on. But the point is, this is what is wrapped up in your sanctification. This is what is wrapped up in, in the writer saying, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate on Calvary. I don't know, I don't know what you think about when you hear that. But to me it's, it's absolutely humbling. I mean, it's, it's absolutely pride-stripping. Because it's not what I do, it's what He does. It's not about me, it's about Him. It's not about my glory, it's about His glory. It's not about my ability, it's about His ability. It's humbling. It's, it's humbling so much, some people say, I don't want anything to do with that. 
I remember an old Charlie Daniels song. I love Charlie Daniels, but one song I always turn off when it comes on my iPod when I'm playing Charlie, which I happened to have been doing on, my, on the road trip yesterday. And uh, he, he gets, it's, it's a country boy. And, and he gets to a point and says, I don't, want, I don't want anything that I can't do. I don't want anybody doing anything for me that I can't do. Well, that's the essence of the Antichrist. Now, Charlie's a Christian now, but I don't think he was when he wrote that song. But the point is, we, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who are absolutely and completely helpless. God didn't help those who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and say, I'll be religious and I'll be good and I'll be better and I'll improve and I'll try harder. No, God helps those who come to the end of their rope and say, God, I can't do this. I must have you. Either you do it, Lord, or it doesn't get done. Either you sanctify me or I don't get sanctified. Either you make me holy or I don't get holy. Because I tell you what, I can't be holy in my own strength. Only in Christ. Only in Christ. So verse 13 says, on the basis of that truth, let us, let us go out to him outside the camp. Bearing his reproach. When Jesus went outside of Jerusalem that day, He went as a man despised. He went as a man treated like a criminal. He went as a man condemned to die after being beaten and spit upon and, and carried through the most horrendous punishment physically that the body could take. only to get to the cross and suffer the real pain of the cross, and that's the bearing of our sins. And the writer of Hebrews says, dare I say Luke says, so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach, bearing the shame, bearing the punishment, bearing the rejection. What he's saying here, and with verse 14 together, what he's saying here is, listen, if you're pursuing the stuff of this world, you're missing the whole point. He says, for, for we don't have a lasting city here. Here we do not have a lasting city. But we... Emphatically, we who are in Christ, we who are being sanctified, we who have, have come to the, to the cross, to the only altar, we who have been saved by the blood of Christ through His own blood, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The city of God. The city of man is not a lasting city. We don't have a lasting city here. This city will be burned up. This city will be lost. This city will be eaten by moths, this city will rust, this city will be stolen by thieves, this city will be destroyed by fire. We don't have a city here that's lasting. If you're building your treasure up here on this earth, then the writer's saying, listen, you're missing the whole point because it's all going to be gone. Either it will leave you or you will leave it. 
one way or another, it's not lasting. Oh, you can pass it on to somebody else and, and they can learn the, the truth that it's not lasting. They can learn the truth that it won't by joy or meaning or purpose. They can learn that. But he said, we're seeking, we're seeking the city which is to come. We're seeking the city of God. We're seeking the presence of God. We're seeking the power of God. We're seeking to know Him above everything else. We're seeking to put aside every idol. We're seeking to put aside every self-centered attitude. We're, we're seeking to put aside the idol of self and self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-exaltation. You know what the biggest enemy? Well, I won't say it's your biggest enemy. I'll tell you what my biggest enemy in my sanctification is. It's me. It's self. Oh, but I want to be comfortable, or I want to be liked, or I want to be, I want to be accepted. I want to be whatever. Fill in the blank. He says, let's go outside the camp with him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear his reproach. He, he, he died with no riches. He died with no respect. He died with, with no popularity. He died with nothing except God, his Father. And the mission that God had given him. And he was fulfilled in it. He died completely alone. But the scripture says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. You know where we find joy? We find joy when we see the purpose of God and we follow it by his grace. We find joy when we know that sanctification power in our life that comes through His shed blood, that comes from the altar, the true altar at Calvary, that changes us and changes our focus and changes our understanding and changes our purpose and changes our life completely. We seek the city that's yet to come. We seek the city of God. One of the greatest tragedies of the church in the 21st century. One of the greatest tragedies of Christians in the 21st century. Is that we really do look like we're seeking the city of man. We, we sort of segregate our spiritual life and our secular life. We sort of say, well, we really are seeking God when we come to church, when we worship, when we read our Bible. We're really seeking God. But the rest of the time, it looks like God who? Who? Jesus? What? Jesus? What? Because it, really like it really looks like we're seeking our pleasure, our enjoyment, our satisfaction, our exaltation, our popularity, our comfort. Then the glory of Christ. 
and I'm convinced that's why the world looks at us and says, well, what's, what's different about you? And that's why the world looks at a lot of preachers and says, well, what's different about them? Sadly, I'm afraid they can look at this preacher sometimes and say, well, what's different about you? What are we seeking? What is our passion? What's really important? I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer it for yourself. Is it that I be happy? Or that I be holy? Is it that I be happy? Or that I be exalting Christ? Quite honestly, I think the biggest, I said earlier, the biggest idol is self, and, and that's true, I think. But the second biggest idol in our culture is happiness. And it is an idol. And it's a, it's a lying idol. It's a false idol. That the more we pursue it, the less we get it. Last night I got home, long drive back from Atlanta after a wedding. And I was so tired. And I went to bed early. I never go to bed early. You know me, I'm a 12 to 2 guy. I, sometime in that framework I'll get in bed. Last night, 10 o'clock. I'm going to bed. I'm going to go to sleep. Because I was tired. And I got in bed and I couldn't go to sleep. And I said, I'm going to go to sleep. Go to sleep. Sleep, sleep. I, I tried as hard as I could. And finally, I got up and said, this is crazy. I went and got a book, came back and laid down, read two pages, and I was out of it like that. You say, sleep, the harder you pursue it, the more evasive it is. This idol of happiness is the same thing. The harder you pursue it, the more evasive it is. When you turn to Christ as Lord, when you, when you see Him as the Lord of your life over everything, the idol of happiness disappears and the reality of joy takes over. Think about it. What are you pursuing? What is Christ doing in your life today? Let's pray. Father, help us like this writer, this author. Seek your city. Your city where you reign, where you rule where we are citizens by virtue of our faith in Christ. Help us see, Lord, we're strangers and aliens here. This, as the old hymn says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Lord, let us yearn for your city 
to be manifest in our lives right now. Not just when we die. Father, teach us that great glorious truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.